Kia ora, this is Anderson's Odyssey. I'm Jacob Anderson, and my guest today is Professor James Renwick. James is a climate scientist and a member of the Climate Change Commission, which provides independent advice for government on how to meet emissions reduction targets. Good to see you, James. Kia ora, Jacob. Uh, great to have a chat with you. Firstly, I, I think one question that's been popping up a lot is how much of an impact has lockdown across the globe had on reducing emissions? Yeah, that's a great question. It's had a bit of an impact. Um, this year, the estimates are that global emissions will be down about 7 or 8% on what they were last year or what they would have been this year otherwise. Um, so that's, you know, that's the sort of level of decreases in emissions we need to see every year from now on until we get to zero. If we're going to stop, um, you know, if we're going to get to zero emissions by 2050 and stop the warming at something like one and a half degrees or maybe a little bit more than that. So that's, that's good news, although it's come at a huge, a terrible cost. And it's really the wrong way to go about reducing emissions, just, you know, locking down and shutting down parts of the economy around the world. So if we can find ways to do that sustainably and re with renewable energy in future, well, great. I guess the, the worry, though, is that we've seen this reduction in emissions this year. Uh, emissions are likely to just go back up again as economies re-boost themselves. We have the, the so-called idea of the green stimulus uh, with, with the view that as governments boost up their economies, um, they should be investing in uh, non-fossil infrastructure, you know, re renewable energy and so on. If, if all the governments of the world did that, then, yeah, we might see continued reductions in emissions. But if they don't, and there's no real sign that they are, then probably emissions are going to go back up again. And it really is a long game, this business of reducing emissions, especially carbon dioxide. It just builds up in the air. So it's, it's only when we get to zero emissions that we stop changing the climate. And a small reduction this year, great stuff. But if that's all that happens, doesn't really have much of an impact in the long term. We've seen, um, certainly in New Zealand, I can't speak for overseas, but obviously once people started to lift lockdown, obviously, you know, cars are back on the road, everything kind of spins back up, as you mentioned. There is this kind of two-year, perhaps this two-year window of new investment where all the, the governments are trying to reinvest money and, and sort of stimulate the economy in new ways. From what you've seen, how much of that is currently just kind of business as usual, let's get people back to work, and how much of it is genuine green investment looking to transition towards renewable options? Uh, well, it's a mixture, I think. Um, and I've seen some literature from around the world that there's a lot of good ideas out there of how to invest in greener infrastructure. Here in New Zealand, I think there's a lot of stuff that's on the books, the so-called shovel-ready projects that are not especially um, renewably based or especially climate action related. But on the other hand, you know, there's other things going on, such as the government's recent announcement of looking at pumped hydro, you know, Lake Onslow, <coughs> thinking, <coughs> pardon me, thinking about um, the whole gamut of renewable energy and how we best set up that infrastructure. So if that kind of project 
gets a boost. And if we see incentives coming in for things like electrification of the vehicle fleet and so on, that could be really good. But there's quite a lot of infrastructure projects and just you know investment projects generally that are kind of business as usual that wouldn't necessarily bring a lot of um, renewable energy to the fore or, or reduced emissions. So it's, it is a bit of a mixed bag. And I think internationally, there's a lot that's a lot of investment really is in the same old and without really putting a lot into renewables. Although, you know, there are some and there's a lot of thinking around that. It's just a question of making it happen. It's the easy option is to put money into what's already there, right? Rather than start something from scratch. So there is a kind of inertia in the, in the system economically, which means we end up investing in some of these things that probably we shouldn't really be pursuing. And you mentioned this idea of a couple of years. That's right, you know, this really is the crucial decade, the 2020s. If we're going to stop warming at a level that's somewhat manageable, we really need to be getting on with it in this decade. Get global emissions down by half by 2030 and then get to zero by 2050. Uh, and it's been, stated that yeah actually forget about decade we've really only got 18 months or two years because a lot of these reinvestment plans to stimulate economies around the world are happening now will happen over the next year or two and if those decisions those investment decisions are made in ways that lock in further fossil fuel based infrastructure then you know that puts the whole plan back years and years because once you build things uh, whether that's properties, roads, any kind of infrastructure, you know, you're, you're expecting that built infrastructure, especially to be there for maybe a century. And you're talking about spending 10 to 20 years getting things built. So what we start now is really going to be with us in the long term. And we need to be pretty careful about what we do over the next year or two years. Over the last 100 years, we've or so we've increased temperatures now by about a degree and it's forecast that will increase by another degree in the next 20 so around 2040 we might hit two degrees is it, what what does that look like for new zealand when we're already starting to see some of those um those big impacts you know we've recently had the floods in in northland and, and you know, before COVID, of course, we had everyone. Everyone, as everyone might be able to remember the the bushfires in Australia. What are some of the yeah. the big kind of things that that concern you most about that kind of that next degree of warming over the next kind of few decades? Yeah, and and you're right. We're a little bit more than a degree of warming um, above pre-industrial now. And yeah, if we do nothing with emissions, we just keep pumping it out as per the last two or three years then there'll be enough carbon dioxide in the air to get us to two degrees of warming, yeah, within a couple of decades, by 2040. Sometime in the 2040s, um, temperatures would reach two degrees above pre-industrial if we do nothing. So again, that idea of the urgency, if we can reduce emissions quickly, then we can avoid even getting to two degrees of warming, I think. But if we don't, and we do get, say, a couple of degrees of warming, then you know, we've already seen the intensity and the extent of bushfires in the places that tend to get them, like southeastern Australia, southern California, and so on, become a lot worse. And 
we would just expect to see those things continue to increase in severity. Um, high temperature extremes, heat waves becoming more frequent pretty much everywhere, more intense. And yesterday, probably the, the highest temperature ever recorded on Earth occurred in, in Death Valley in Southern California, but up to, what was it, 130? 54, I think, was it? Yeah, 54 degrees C, yeah. which is pretty hard to imagine, <laughs> I must say. And I saw one of the people who, one of the rangers who um, works there saying, oh, it felt much the same as 50 degrees. <laughs> well, I suppose that might be right. <laughs> um, but as temperatures get up to that sort of level, much above body temperature, then it becomes quite dangerous to be outside because your body can't cool itself and the, the mortality from just heat can go up dramatically. So, you know, that, that's an issue in itself. Um, the amount of moisture in the air is just a function of temperature. It increases exponentially as temperatures go up. So the intensity of heavy rainfall events uh, will just keep getting um, larger and these heavy rainfall events will be occurring more frequently. So with two degrees of warming, um, we'd be looking at in the, in the wet places in the world, such as the monsoon regions in the tropics and such as the west coast of the South Island in New Zealand, to be getting something on the order of 10% more rainfall, which would probably come in a bunch of really big bursts. Um, while the drier parts of the world, such as you know, the east coast of the South Island, is an obvious one for New Zealand, likely to see something like a doubling of the frequency of droughts. So the, the, the extremes at either end of the rainfall scale increasing. And even in places that are relatively dry that might get droughts, like Northland, when there's a storm, you would still expect the heavy rains to be even heavier, as we saw in the um, floods they had up there recently. So all of those kinds of events happening more often. And we'd be, if we double the increase in temperature, which is roughly what we're talking about, getting to two degrees, then we're doubling the currents of and the intensity, in a sense, of some of these extreme events from where we are, uh, what we've seen already. Another one that has only really come to the fore in the last five years or so is marine heat waves. So these are just very high temperature events in the sea surface temperatures. Uh, and the ocean surface has warmed maybe not as much as the land surface temperature because oceans are much slower to respond to, to heating, but the frequency of marine heat waves, that is prolonged spells of temperatures well above average in a given part of the world, they've gone up by a factor of um, two or three, I think, since the 1950s. And those events would continue to be will become much more frequent again. And it, this is a real worry for marine life and for things like coral reefs in the tropics. Ocean temperatures don't really vary much, nowhere near as much as they do on land. A one degree change in sea temperatures is a pretty big deal in most parts of the global oceans. So if you're warming ocean temperatures up by something like two degrees, uh, it's, it's pushing high temperature extremes right off the scale in a lot of places. And, I suppose some species, you know, some fish species can move to cooler waters closer to the poles, but I think a lot of marine life might die out uh, if temperatures continue to increase much more. And, you know, this is a real 
danger for both for fisheries and, and food supplies. I find a good well, analogy to that is, is like when we have a fever, you know, and you notice yeah, one, de- one yeah. degree of, of warming for you and all of a sudden you feel absolutely awful and the sort of stresses on the marine ecosystem are probably something quite mm. similar. Yeah, two degrees of warming, two degrees above normal when you're down at the hospital, probably. Yeah, so. and, and a few and years ago, I remember, pop- I forget where it was exactly in Europe, but the, the, you know, something, all these shellfish started opening up, basically boiling yep. in the water. Yep. Yeah. Um, that, that, well, talking about the oceans, yeah, that effect combined with the acidification, you know, the oceans are soaking up about a third of the carbon dioxide we're pumping out. And as carbon dioxide dissolves into water, it turns into carbonic acid. So the, um, the acidity of ocean waters is gradually increasing. And well, I say gradually, but compared to how it normally changes over geological timescales, it's happening very, very rapidly. And we may be at um, levels not seen for 20 million years or more by the end of the century, if we keep going with the uh, the sorts of emissions we've got at the moment, and that would just be well, it's it's very hard to say exactly what the effect would be, but we know it would be catastrophic, and we know from the geological record that there have been mass extinctions in the oceans when the the acidity levels have changed significantly. So and it, it, it seems, I mean, um, not that I'm a, uh, at all an expert on that topic, but rates of evolution just can't can't be possible at, at those sorts of um, timescales, which is the sort of the big uncertainty, isn't it, regarding the biological system in, in terms of these sorts of changes? Exactly. I mean, in the past, you know, you go back millions of years and carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere have been all over the place, you know, several times what they are at present or six times the current, and temperatures have been much, much higher in the past than no ice and so on. But those big swings take hundreds of thousands of years to happen. The, the increase in carbon dioxide in the air in the last century is unprecedented, basically, and the rate of change of temperature and climate right now is, yeah, you're exactly right. It's way faster than the evolutionary timescale for maybe fruit flies <laughs> can keep up with it, but anything that has a lifetime of even a year or two would be struggling to, to adapt. Well, one thing, you know, one of the, the oldest sort of reptile, the tuatara we have, has got sex, de- uh, a temperature-dependent uh, eggs mm. that determine its, its sex. So that's a, another really interesting question around a conservation problem. And, and I think often the, the ecological nature of climate change is... is often sort of not appreciated or, or a lot of the questions regarding what that means in terms of new invasive species or new species coming in or other animals having to move where, they, where they're coming from. Do you know or are you familiar with much work in that space that's happening in New Zealand, kind of looking at some of that impact? Uh, I'm aware of some. I'll have to say it's, it's not something I'm really on top of. And I think part of the issue is that we just don't have much of a base. We have, obviously, knowledge of a lot of our indigenous species and so on, but long-term measurements of the health of different ecosystems, biodiversity, um, 
and trends, changes in how uh, different native species are, are coping are pretty few and far between. And the, the ecologists I know, that's what they usually say. Well, we just don't actually know because we don't have measurements. Or if we do have measurements, there's only a handful and it's hard to draw any conclusions on the, on the long term about what's going on. But what we do know is that as we push the climate harder, you know, plus that's combined with um, habitat fragmentation and, you know, other pressures on uh, natural systems that we're uh, generating, it just becomes harder and harder for especially native species to, to cope. And again, it's hard to put a number on it, but there could be 30% um, or more extinctions of native species, natural ecosystems here with two degrees or a little bit more than that warming. So it's a little bit like the marine situation. We don't know exactly, but we do know that, you know, there's a number of species that are already in trouble. And as we push things harder, that's just bound to accelerate. One, one thing that might be a little bit closer to home for people, especially in winter is, well, maybe not so much this winter, but um, in, in winter is, is snowfall and, and skiing. Mm -hmm. So Ruapehu is patchy at the best of times sometimes. What, what is snowfall and what is, you know, especially where we can ski in, in parts of New Zealand, what does that possibly look like in the second half of the century in a, in yeah. a two degree world? <laughs> Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, it's another area that hasn't had a huge amount of research, but, you know, enough to, to tell the story, I think. And say 10 or 15 years ago, if I was asked that question my, without you know, having really looked into it, I think the natural tendency would be to say, well, the amount of moisture in the air is related to the temperature. So as temperatures go up, there's more moisture. So if it's cold, you know, it's... It's warmer, but it's still below freezing. You expect to get more snow falling in, in places where you get snow, you know, above the snow line of the mountains. So maybe the ski areas would be okay. But it turns out um, the research that was done in the last 10 years shows that actually the temperature effect, just the warming turns a lot of the snow into rain and you end up with less snow pretty much everywhere as things warm up. So with a couple of degrees of warming, I think the number is something like 20, 30, 40% decrease in seasonal snowpack at every altitude. The, the lower you go, the, the more reduction in the snowpack. But even on the tops of the Southern Alps, we're still looking at something like a 30% reduction. And a shortening of the snow season and a shortening of the ski season. So, yeah, the only ski fields that look like they would be even intermittently viable are the ones furthest south at highest altitude, you know, the sort of Cadrona and Co. Probably be okay for a good part of the rest of the century, but I know this year things are not looking great there. Um, North Island ski fields, yeah, probably out of the picture by the middle of the century. And maybe the ski operators can keep making snow for a while beyond that, but you can get to a point where it's just too warm too often for you even to make snow. So I think the ski operators are pretty aware of all of this um, and they, they'll make their investment decisions appropriately. But I think skiing in New Zealand would be, uh, will become limited to the southern half of the South Island. And even 
in places like Queenstown, there'll be a fair number of years that'll be marginal at best. Yeah. You have talked about this for a long time and, and you know, I've been involved not quite as long as you have, but, you know, there's definitely been a shift in, in um, awareness I think, and, and that's partly probably from the school strike movement and this real increase in the last few years. Yeah. But that urgency part still, while the awareness part seems there and everyone kind of gets it and is on board now, that urgency part to create the change, to prevent the world that you've just described, doesn't feel like we're quite there yet. From your uh, conversations with you know various sort of decision makers in Wellington and and with the public in general. What do you think are some of the the, the big challenges that we still haven't quite figured out to get that shift from understanding to um, urgent change and action? Hmm. Excellent questions. <laughs> um, you're right that the, the public mood, I think, has shifted quite a bit in the last few years. And the level of political activism, I think, has increased quite a bit. Like you say, the school strike movement, Extinction Rebellion, uh, and the sort of general agitation around climate action has increased a lot. And I think that has made a difference to the political discourse and, and to policymakers. But Getting actual change at the policy level and, you know, shifts in business activity, energy production, all those things is, is hard, right? There's, there's a lot of inertia in the system, there's a lot of conservatism, uh, a lot of risk aversion around investing in new areas, all of these kind of things. Um, and to be honest, I think the fossil fuel sector, the oil industry and the coal industry are still promoting the idea that we need to keep going with um, extracting fossil fuels and burning them because that's the way the global economy operates. And well, it is. But, you know, if, if, if we keep going down that line, you know, that's the road to ruin, absolutely. So while we do have an economy, and maybe not so much in New Zealand, but even here, a lot of our energy production is fossil-based, Unless we make a decision, you know, have some leadership that says, look, we are going to move away from this, even though it's still a big deal for the global economy. We're not going to see much change. So it does take real political leadership. And even now, that's pretty thin on the ground. You know, our Prime Minister here talked about this being this generation's nuclear-free moment and so on. And, you know, I, I, she wasn't making that up, I'm sure. But given the makeup of the government coalition situation, you know, it's very hard to get these things pushed through and agreed upon by everybody you need to get agreement from in, in Parliament. So the democratic process kind of puts a break on the system as well. And yeah, it's, there's just a lot of bureaucracy to, to work through and, and a lot of inertia in the system. It is, you know, it really is an urgent situation. And this decade really is the the crunch, I think, if we're going to get on top of the issue. But even so, it, <laughs> it still doesn't seem to get through at that policy level in a lot of areas. And I, I'm honestly a 
uh, at a bit of a loss to know what, what to do or say. The, the evidence is there. And, you know, you need to communicate in a way that really does get through to people, whether it's the general public or the policymaker or the prime minister, whoever. So, you know, it's not just about presenting the data. That obviously doesn't work because that's been tried for 30 years. So I think if we can continue to develop narratives around, uh, you know, money, cost, economics, um, community well-being, sustainability, all those things, I think that, that might help move things more quickly. But uh, even so, it's still going to be a relatively slow process which tells me that you know the sooner we get started, the better. Because if it takes ten years to shift our investment in energy infrastructure, then you know this is, this is ten years we don't really have anymore. We really need to get on. One thing I think I've learned from having different conversations since um, the pandemic is, it's you know the evidence has has kind of been mostly kind of followed in New Zealand, but it's trust and evidence that is required to actually get community to engage. And I think building that trust and that respect part in the climate or environmental um, crisis is, isn't quite there. And it's, you know, as we've seen with, with COVID, the urgency is just nowhere near there when it comes to climate change yet. Um, but how how do you think i mean you've been involved with, with with some art projects as well in trying to bridge that gap between sort of the science and and sort of the arts community and other communities what are some of the things that you've that you've been involved with that have have worked quite well in that space do you think mm, yeah another good question and i have been involved with the arts community the arts sector the last few years and the reason for that is the idea of connecting with people that it's not about presenting facts and talking about the science. Most people are not actually interested in that. But everybody, you know, everyone has an emotional connection, I think, with their own community, their own family, um, the things and the people that are important to them. And, you know, and the arts are really about that kind of emotional connection, whether that's through music or movies or dance, theatre, painting, whatever, um, most people have that connection to the arts in some way and it's a way of talking to people that does connect with them because it's designed, you know, it's all about emotional connection. So um, in the past, the art sector hasn't been a huge player in, you know, developing stories around climate change, but that is changing. And I think it's, um, it's a great way to reach people, essentially, that, yeah, everyone in some way or other does have an interest in artistic expression, whether that's through, you know, popular music or whatever. So if stories about climate change can come through those kind of channels, then I think you stand a pretty good chance of connecting with a lot of people in a way that they can relate to. So that's, that's been my hope, and that's why I've worked with a bunch of um, uh, arts practitioners over the last few years. Whether or not that has caused a shift in society is a bit harder to say. Um, 
I've been on roadshows around the country, meeting artists and talking to public audiences about all of this. And there have been really good conversations in all parts of the country that I've been to. So quite a few, you know, we're talking thousands of people in total have been uh, participants in all of this as I've traveled around and others, not just me. Um, so I think the reach is there in a sense, but it's very hard to measure what difference that makes uh, in, in people's day-to-day -day lives. What you do see is with things like the surveys that IAG, the insurance company, do on an annual basis, the number of people who are concerned and the number of people who want to see action and the number of people who are doing things in their own lives to reduce their carbon footprints. Those, things, those numbers are all increasing. So I think people are increasingly concerned and increasingly have an understanding of what it means for them. So, so I guess that's a good thing. And I just plan to carry on with that uh, as a bit of a sideline to my sort of my own research work. Um, but really what I'm interested in is finding any way that um, works as a style of communication that will help people understand what's happening, what really what the dangers are for us and what we have to do and how quickly we have to do it to avoid a bad outcome in the future. Or, or maybe a better way of putting it to secure a good outcome in the future. You know, if we could get to a renewably powered global economy in the next 20 years, I think that'd be a pretty nice world to live in. Not only would it be uh, a no climate change future, it would also be a much um, cleaner future, literally. You know, the, the reduction in emissions with COVID-19 this year um, is one thing, but the reduction in air pollution, which happened almost instantly because, you know, the particulates that make up smog and air pollution, they fall out of the sky pretty quickly. So if you turn off the factories and the cars, all that stuff goes away within a matter of days. And we saw all these amazing pictures from big cities overseas where suddenly you could see the mountains and see the horizon. And the air quality improved dramatically. And I'm sure that saved some lives from, you know, um, respiratory uh, issues. So if we can knock that on the head permanently, you know, that would be a huge public health boon. I, rem I remember seeing a, a photo, I forget where it was in India, and it was the first time that that city had seen mm. the Himalayas or M Mount Everest yeah. in some, you know, <laughs> decades or maybe even longer. It was, it was yeah. quite remarkable. Um, the, that, that painting that picture of, you know, the exciting future, this, this you know, future that's far more... Um, fun and exciting to live in, I think, is, is really the, the best way to look at this and, and painting that optimistic picture. Um, but often to paint that optimistic picture, it means we have to have some pretty hard conversations with some of the, the, the industries. And, you know, in New Zealand in particular, you know, the two big challenges for us are that we have old cars, effectively, and... Uh, a huge agricultural sector, which takes up half of our emissions. From the Climate Change Commission's perspective, what, what sort of advice or what sort of things are you guys um, suggesting that, that are the kind of the, the ways to, to help us move away from, or, or what, what, what is the, that, um, that role that you guys have to help us kind of attack the key areas that we, that we need to try and draw down our emissions? 
Yeah, so the, the Climate Change Commission is charged with the responsibility of coming up with budgets for emissions reductions and advice on how to achieve those budgets. So the Commission staff are working through sectors of the economy, such as transport, land use, energy production for industry, all of those things, and looking at what the alternatives are and, and modelling how emissions would change if we take certain paths with um, renewables, with um, you know, various rates of electrification of the vehicle fleet, all, all of those kind of things. And, and you know, it's, it's still relatively early days with that work. We don't have any um, sort of even draft advice really set up yet, but you know, it's, it's, it's definitely in the works. Um, so it, it is quite a, a big task, basically looking right across New Zealand, right across the New Zealand economy and saying, okay, what, what can we do? What is in the next five years, then the five years after that and so on, to, um, to move in the direction of meeting these targets? Um, so it involves, you know, the, the mix of people working on this, there's, there's scientists, there's energy system modelers, there's economists, um, planners, social scientists, um, all sorts of disciplines have been brought into the mix here. And um, the goal is to have, you know, defensible evidence-based um, advice, um, ideas around here's concrete things that could be done over the next few years that would reduce emissions by a certain amount in certain areas. And then it's up to the government to decide whether they actually want to follow that or, or how they would go about actually implementing it all. So it's, it is a, it's a big area, that, it, but you know, it's, it's been working in other places. I guess the UK is a great example. The equivalent, the Climate Change Committee, I think it's called there, has been going for over a decade and they're on to their fifth budget now, I think it is. And emissions in the UK have gone down quite dramatically in the last not just in the last 10 years, over the last 20 or 30 years. I think coal use in the UK is now down to the levels it was in the 1700s at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So uh, it can be done. Um, and well, that, that could be a long story again, but um, that, that's what the Commission is working through at the moment. It's just chugging through all of the um, sectors of the economy and seeing where some gains can be made and thinking about what could be done in the short term, what's the most cost effective, and what are some of the things that might be practical to think about in the slightly longer term, so trying to think about the, the staging of, of all of this. The other, I guess, the, the other big part of that beyond what um, government and what we want businesses to do is what we as individuals can do and you know often this is the question that that many people ask you know what can what can i do as an individual and i've got my own lists and i know you do as well um but maybe one of the things what we've done at blake we we've established these environmental statements and we have um the four statements climate change marine freshwater and, and biodiversity and each of those has associated actions with them so maybe should I just kind of go through some of those and then, and then if we have any other kind of discussion um, points around those, that might be a good way to look at it. So we, one mm -hmm. of the, the obvious ones as individuals is kind of out thinking about how we travel, you know, air travel, 
public transport, um, trying to use public transport, should I say rather, cycling or, or, or trying to get electric vehicles. One of the challenges with electric vehicles at the moment in New Zealand is still the, the, the lack of incentives, which hasn't unfortunately been able to happen. Um, and of course, the, the expensive cost. But I know you, you've talked as well a little bit about, you know, trying to trying to really scale up that public transport feasibility as well, haven't you? Um, yeah. Instead of instead of us thinking about using individual cars. Yeah, I think it, you know New Zealand is a relatively sparsely populated country, so it's not necessarily easy to do everywhere. But yeah, I think with enough investment, we could have a, a really efficient, reliable public transport system in most parts of the country. And that would reduce the need for people to own their own vehicles. And New Zealanders love driving cars. You know, I think car ownership in New Zealand per head of population is, is about the highest in the OECD or second highest. It's right up there. Um, so it would take a bit of a shift of mindset. I guess partly that's because public transport isn't so available in a lot of parts of the country. And, you know, the rail network's been wound down over decades. Um, public transport options for long distance travel are relatively limited, apart from the airlines. So that could be turned around with, with enough investment. It would be costly, but I think would be a pretty good investment, speaking personally. Um, and you're right that electric vehicles are expensive and it's not an option for everybody by any means to just go and buy an EV. Uh, plus the infrastructure isn't really there yet yeah, there are charging stations around, but not that many of them. Not like there are petrol stations, for instance. So again, with investment in, in infrastructure and with incentivization of electric vehicle purchases, and probably doesn't have to be huge, we're not talking about the government giving them away for free, but if, if you wanted to buy an EV and you knew that the government was chipping in a few thousand dollars, say, I think that would be... Um, pretty attractive to a lot of people. Just the idea that you're getting a bit of a helping hand on that front would help a lot of people move in that direction. I mean, I, I bought a, an EV a few months ago, a bicycle, an e-bike. Uh, you call that an EV or e-scooter. It doesn't have to be a car. Um, there are a lot of electric options around now. And I think there has been a big increase in cycling, even in Wellington, just through people having access to electric which means they can get up and down the hills a lot more easily than without. Um, so thinking a bit more broadly about EVs, you know, you could see a big increase in their use from two wheels and four wheels without a huge, huge investment from government. So, um, yeah, I think it really is a matter of looking at different parts of the country and people's different circumstances who, who can afford to buy an EV, who needs more public transport and, and where the public transport is needed and all that kind of thing. Plus, thinking more broadly about urban design and you know, designing the cities of the future to be more public transport friendly, higher density housing, people living closer to where they work, all of those kinds of things are part of the mix. And maybe some of those are a bit longer term, thinking about how we gradually reshape our cities and towns. That's what that's one thing that I've been thinking about, and as you see, especially in Auckland, all of these new houses and, and developments going on is 
They might have a single carport or something, but perhaps there can be a way where we build electric charging infrastructure in all of these new developments from the start. Rather, you know, we're building these things now. In 10 years' time, we know we're going to be driving electric cars, but there's, there's no planning about, similar to the public transport issue, you know, they, they, they kind of add it on after they've done the development or they build a new development and then there's only more roads to kind of get people in and out and it just creates more issues. There seems to be this lack of, of planning now about charging infrastructure as much as it is about public transport infrastructure on top of the other yeah. challenges as well, which is, is uh, you know, again, it's, it's cost probably when it comes to a developer, they're just trying to make as many houses on the amount of land that they've gotten. That's, yeah. that is what it is. But uh you know, it's a shame that, that we aren't starting to see that um, sort of picked up more broadly. Yeah, that's right. And it's the sort of thing that actually needs a bit of national coordination, I think. You know, sure, an individual developer can build some houses and, and make some money. That's what that's about. But again, with the right incentives from government and with a bit of, yeah, I guess... It's, it's the local government sort of consenting process and, and zoning and, and all of those things that sort of sound quite boring to a lot of people, but actually make a difference to what you end up with in the way of urban areas or built infrastructure. So I, I'm no expert in this area, but it, I, my impression is a bit of thinking around that could make quite a difference and we could see a move towards high density housing, for instance. And, and factoring in good public transport right from the start with developments in new areas. One of the other big, big ones for individuals is uh, is around food. Um, mm-hmm. In particular, yeah. what what we're eating, where that food has come from, how fresh that food is, and then also the the food waste aspect. I mean, f- food produces uh, about seventeen percent of our total emissions profile. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously, certain foods have a higher footprint to produce um, than others. Um, the the kind of the big ones are meat and dairy consumption, and often people think, "Oh, this is this attack," and it's, it doesn't mean everyone has to all of a sudden become vegan. It just means that they should right. think about reducing their their red meat and dairy um, to perhaps uh, you know chicken or fish or or, or a plant based meal a few times a night instead. Um, and we've seen a lot of shift in that behaviour, but also the the composting one is another part that I think is is not talked about as much. I don't know exactly how much in terms of the the, the landfill and the methane and the landfill aspect of that equation is kind of factored in, but um, I've always wondered why we haven't been able to have sort of compost collection system in areas where people's homes couldn't have compost, you know, like the recycling and, and the rubbish tips. Surely that would be uh, an incentive for councils if they didn't have that much food waste in the landfill as well. Um, yeah, that's a great idea. Um, and I'm sure it is feasible that food scraps and so on could be collected and, and taken to some kind of community somewhat centralised composting area. I, I could imagine, you know, we do that do this with recycling and sorting our rubbish already. Um, there's a bit more to it, I suppose, with perishable goods that are compostable. But 
again, I don't think it's insurmountable at all. It could be done fairly readily with a bit of investment. And yeah, I think that would be a great idea if we had community composting, a bit like community gardens um, and other community facilities. It, it could happen fairly easily. And for, say, apartment dwellers in the city, that would be great because generally those people don't have gardens and you know, don't have an outlet for the compost, so they don't don't do it in the first place. But if, if that could be gathered up and taken to some central point in the city, wherever you are, and used, you know, re, reused, recycled into improving soils, you know, that, it's a real win-win because then you can grow food for people in the city. I could imagine a, a sort of a um, bit of a circular economy around all of that, taking food waste, um, going to community gardens and, and producing food uh, for people to eat again. Uh, I'm, I'm imagining, I'm not sure, but I think elements of this exist already in some of the European cities, um, maybe in places like Canada too. But um, yeah, I think there's a lot of scope there actually. And you're right that reducing meat consumption, I mean, it's not just good for your carbon footprint. All of the medical profession would tell you that eating less red meat especially is good for your heart and good for your health generally. So there's all sorts of reasons why we should be eating less meat, preferably white meat and, and preferably a lot more plants. And the, the energy cost and the, the water cost goes down a lot too. You know, in New Zealand, there's a lot of issues around water quality and irrigation and nitrogen fertilizers and all of that. That is all reduced if we go to a more plant-based diet generally. This was one of the recommendations from the IPCC in the climate change and land use um, report that came out last year. Just more plant-based diets, like you say. It's not like everybody has to be vegan or vegetarian. But if we all reduced our consumption of red meat, especially by even 10%, that would you know, reduce emissions from agriculture quite noticeably. One of the most complex, perhaps, challenges we're facing currently in New Zealand is this question regarding exotic pine and native forests on erosion-prone land or some of these conversions that we're seeing on farms. We know planting trees is still, at the moment, the best technology we have to offset carbon emissions and bias time. But the, this kind of question about planting exotics which store more carbon than the natives do but have other challenges be that sort of for the communities themselves because their conversion you know converting sheep and beef farms that that perhaps have more people working in those communities or um yeah. we're not putting natives in instead which obviously has other biodiversity um advantages that that the, that the pines um don't provide where do you see this conversation sort of finding a kind of happy medium or where do you think we can find a way to work with perhaps more natives in some of these erosion prone areas, but then also looking to farm or looking to kind of plant appropriately? Ah, great question. Not sure if I'm qualified <laughs> to answer that, but um, the, from the limited stuff I've read about this, it is possible to say plant a mix of exotic and native trees and the pines grow up quickly 
and the, the native species come along a bit later, a bit more slowly. And that can be quite good value from a you know economic investment point of view. You get a return in the short term, but you also get establishment of, of better, you know, biodiverse um, stands of trees over the longer term. So again, I think with with a bit of thought about the mix of species, yeah, you know, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be a combination. Um, that that can be a real win. And yeah, we do need to think about whereabouts these trees are being planted, and probably not ideal to be displacing productive, what's presently productive farmland, just because it might be a, a money spinner in terms of the carbon credits. So a little bit of, probably a bit of regulation around that, a bit of a national plan around where these trees are being planted or what, what sort of land is suitable. And yeah, I think, like you said, um, steeper hillsides that are prone to erosion is an obvious place to be planting trees just because it helps with retention of topsoil and so on. And that's another, you know, soil carbon's a big deal if we can be secure and more carbon in the soil and not having it washed away. Um, that's another way of reducing the atmospheric burden. Um, we need to think about things like changing risk of pests, changing fire danger and all that kind of thing too. So if that can be factored in and we can plant species that are resistant to the known pests or not so fire prone. You know, eucalypt, a lot of eucalyptus have been planted in the South Island, I think, in the last 10 or 20 years, and they are particularly fire prone in the right conditions. So we need to think about that kind of thing. Uh, no, no tree species is immune to fire that I'm aware of, but I think it's whereabouts we plant the trees and maybe some of the wetter parts of the country uh, could be um, a good target for mass tree planting. I'm, I'm not exactly sure the billion trees program that's underway at the moment, just what the overall plan is for where, where trees are going to be planted or not planted. But with a bit of thought again, you know, factoring in the changing climate and the changing profile of, of risk around uh, pests and diseases, I think we could make some relatively smart choices. And yeah, you're right, tree planting is about the best technology we have at the moment for offsetting or from reducing um, or bringing down the net emissions. Yeah. Uh, and I should say, I'm going to have to go in a minute. But, um, that's, no, no, that, that's all right. And, and I, appreciate, I really appreciate um, you, you talking um, on, on the podcast today, James. I think um, the, last, the last thing perhaps is, is just managing people's personal supply chains, isn't it? You know, really thinking about all of the goods and products that, that people are mm. using and, and knowing um, how much... Uh, impact each of those items is is or where it's come from and, and what that that production process looks like. That's right. Yeah, just all of us being a bit thoughtful about what we buy, how we buy, how we package things up. So I think the shift to reusable supermarket bags is a good example. That, that's happened pretty quickly, and people have gone along with it. Well, we haven't had a lot of choice, I suppose, um, but it's we just don't think about it anymore. We take our reusable bags and, and that's great. Um, so that kind of shift in behaviour can happen quite quickly. Um, if, if we can be helped along in this area, you know, if, if the packaging of products can be made clearer that, you know, this, these 
grapefruit come from California and you know they've got quite a big carbon footprint associated with them whereas the ones over there are grown in Northland or somewhere closer to home so that people could make the right choices or smarter choices more easily. Right now I think you've got to really hunt around to find out where a lot of products come from and, and what the sort of embedded carbon is associated with them. So I think we could help consumers by just uh, making that kind of information a bit more public. Uh, but, but yeah, thinking about buying more local if possible and um, maybe just not buying so much, not so much about food, but one, one area that's been pointed out is that um, clothing, you know, the fashion industry uh, produces some pretty, as uh, a major chunk of global emissions and the whole fast fashion movement where, you know, things are made on the cheap, probably in some um, developing country in the tropics and they're sold quite cheap in the big stores and people buy stuff and use and wear them for, you know, half a dozen times and throw them away and then get something else. You can move away from that, buy higher quality stuff that maybe is made um, in New Zealand or somewhere closer to home and just look after things more, hang on to things more. And I think that's quite, a, quite an important message generally, just being more thoughtful about stuff, about energy, about how we use what we've got. And if we can be more, um, yeah, more conservative actually about how we um, interact with the world. So if we can avoid um, buying things, using things, throwing things away, um, travel, anything that uses energy uh, in one form or another. Using Just be a less. Bit more thoughtful. Using less, yeah. But, and there is this sort of movement, isn't there? You know, the Marie Kondo mindset maybe of, of having a more minimalist lifestyle. And it's not about living in a cave or anything. You know, global emissions have doubled roughly in the last, I think it's 35 or 40 years. So if global emissions halved, it would be like going back to energy consumption from the 1980s or early 1990s. And that wasn't exactly primitive or difficult. I mean, life was relatively good back then. It's partly to do with population growth in that time. But, you know, we have all, on average, increased our energy consumption because we drive more or we drive bigger cars and, you know, stuff is more freely available. There's a lot more shopping going on. Yeah. If we could just wind that back, it could make a big difference. And it doesn't have to mean we have miserable lives at all. As we found out, I think, in the lockdown, it might mean we have somewhat better lives because we have more time to actually interact with our, our local community and, and you know those uh, best things in lives in life that turn out to be free we maybe enjoy them a bit more i think and i think there's a lot of fantastic companies now in new zealand and overseas that are really leading the way in this space and mm, and yeah. starting to help us reimagine all of these different industries which you know to me seems really exciting and and that makes me think, you know, in 10, 20 years, you know, what is the world going to look like? And it, and it, and it will be really exciting and, and a fantastic um, place. And so, James, I really appreciate you uh, talking today. It's, it's always great to, to have a chat with you. And it's always uh, really interesting to hear your perspective mm. on, on some of these really important issues. Yeah, well, great to talk to you, Jacob. Thanks very much for setting us up. Thanks, James. And, and thanks for listening, everyone. Go well.